morning. I love VBS, if you can't tell. I'm super excited. This is how I show I am very, very pro-VBS. Today we are continuing with our series that I've titled Work Zone, and what we're doing is focusing on the things that we do when we gather as a congregation. We have put a lot of effort, especially over the last two years, and a lot of creativity into ensuring that we can regularly gather as a congregation. And we've been exploring why it's worth all of that effort and why we do each of the things that we do in our order of service. And the main argument that I've been making is that Scripture tells us that when God's people gather together, He is especially present. And when God is especially present, the things that we do in His presence are especially powerful and meaningful. And so I'm hoping to give us a mentality of the value of participating in the congregation that it's not just about what you come and receive, it's not just about what you come and feel, but it's that when we do things together, these things that we do matter, and there's value simply in them having been done. So we've talked about why we worship, and we've talked about why we sing. Today we're moving into why we do confession and reconciliation. I'm excited to get a chance to do this because I don't know about you, but until I came here, I had not been a member of a church that regularly practiced confession in the worship service. Now, the vast majority of Christians, of churches do, and throughout history have, but the churches that I have gone to, and evangelical churches, um, tend not to have this as part of their worship. And, but there was a point at which we decided to incorporate this into our worship, and I want to talk about why we do that and the, the value that it has. Now, one of the reasons why we don't is because in our tradition, we have sought to do things as close to the way they're done in the New Testament as we can, and it's true that there isn't a place in the New Testament where it talks about confession as a part of the order of of the worship service. However, there's a very fascinating document that we're going to look at in a few different times during this series called the Didache. And the Didache is a, it's not scripture, but it's a book that was written by Christians about how they do church. And the interesting thing about the Didache is that as far as we can tell, it was written while some of the apostles were still alive. It's actually entirely possible that this book was written before the book of Revelation was written. And so while it's not scripture, it tells us how people interpreted and practiced the teaching of the apostles while some of them were still alive. And in the Didache, it has interesting things to say about how we pray. It has interesting things to say about communion, and we'll talk about those in those sermons. But in the Didache, what we see two references to confession. The first one says, In the church you shall acknowledge your transgressions, and you shall not come near for your prayer with an evil conscience. Later it says, Every Lord's Day, gather yourselves together and break bread and give thanksgiving after having confessed your transgressions that your sacrifice may be pure. So what we see is, from the very earliest days, Christians practice confession as part of their worship service. And what we're going to see in Scripture is that confession is a very important part of, the, of what, uh, what the New Testament tells us to do. And so what we're going to be asking is, why do we confess? We're also going to be asking, why do we forgive each other as part of the worship service? And then we're going to ask, what does it do to have confessed and forgiven each other during the worship service? There are a couple of valid hang-ups that we, we get caught up in because of historical things that have happened in the church 
that they, they get our, our warning lights flashing when we talk about confession because of way, and reconciliation because of the way they've been abused. And so I want to address those as we go. The first thing is when we talk about confession, oftentimes we will fear that a person is saying that if you haven't confessed sins, then even if you're a Christian, but you haven't confessed these sins when you died, then you're not saved. You're not going to heaven. And so you have to keep confessing sins to make sure that you get forgiven for all those. And we will very validly say, no, no, I've been saved by God. I'm, I'm good with him. I'm going to heaven. I don't need to keep confessing. I would, and what I would say, that I agree with that, except for the fact that sin is not just about whether you go to heaven or hell. There's more about our relationship with God there's more to our relationship with God than just where we end up when we die. And our relationship with God is a lot more like our relationship with people than we think. So the first thing that I want to observe as we look at confession is that sin disrupts our relationship with God. In the same way, what I mean by disrupt is it's the exact same thing that happens when we hurt each other in our own relationships. You ever said hi to your spouse or your good friend and the way they said hi back made you realize suddenly something was wrong? Uh-oh, I did something. Or you've been in the car with a couple and it's just palpable how awkward it is because their relationship has been disrupted by something that somebody did? Okay, things are weird. Thing, or, you know, you, or when you're in one of those places and you and your spouse or you and your friend, you just are not in sync. You just, there's trouble there and you're not, you're not in a good relationship. Now, that doesn't mean, if it, in, in the instance of a married couple, that doesn't mean that you're going to get a divorce. That doesn't mean that your relationship is at stake, but it's certainly not smooth in that moment. That's a separate, whether, whether my wife and I are in sync at the moment is a separate question from whether we're committed to our marriage vows, Right? And we find this as a theme in Scripture when we, when we see people confessing, that they're recognizing there is something wrong between God and I right now. There's something disrupted. Even though we're com he's com I know he's committed to me and I'm committed to him, something's off, and it's my fault. David says this in a, the most famous confession, Psalm 51. He says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Now, when David confesses, you know, you might argue, well, that's before the New Testament. And so maybe his relationship with God really is at stake. But we find he's recognizing there's a disruption going on that needs to be dealt with. And when we move into the New Testament, we still see that same acknowledgement being made. And actually, that same acknowledgement being essential to a, the Christian mindset. John is talking to Christians when he writes, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. He's talking to Christians when he says that if we are acting like there isn't sin going on and there isn't disruption going on, then, then we're wrong. We're off. We need to acknowledge that that disruption is happening. And after all, Jesus has also taught us to say, to preach, or to pray regularly, hasn't he? Forgive us our debts. 
as we have forgiven our debtors. He's talking present tense about forgiveness. So what we see is that, that sin disrupts our relationship with God even after we get saved. Now, here's why I'm putting that in quotes. Because I think we use the word saved imprecisely sometimes. When we say I'm saved, what we mean, it would be accurate, you've given your life to Jesus, you're saved from hell. Right? You're, you are, God is committed to you, you're committed to God, and he, nothing can separate you from his love. Right, And you are saved from separation from God. That is something that you can say, it's already done, nothing's going to change it. But, that's, but hell is not the only thing we need being saved from. We also need to be saved from sin. Not just the consequences of sin, but the presence of sin. I remember as a kid, people would tell me, you're saved, don't worry about it. I'm like, don't worry about it. I'm not worried about where I'm going when I die. I'm worried about these things that I keep doing to people that I don't want to do. I'm worried about the per- kind of person I'm being. I want to be saved from that. And that is something that we're saved from in the present tense. That's why Paul actually says you are being saved just as often as he says you have been saved. It's not because you're, the, whether or not you're, you're going to heaven is constantly in, in doubt. That's what justification means. He is committed to you, and that's it. But he's also committed to saving you from the sin that so often entangles us so that we can be better people. And that's, that's where confession comes in. It's not in the matter of whether I'm going to go to heaven or not. It's in the matter of what kind of person am I going to be right now? And what kind of person am I going to be tomorrow? And how am I going to serve God well in this life? Sin disrupts that. And we should want to have, if we love God, we should want to have a good relationship with him, regardless of whether we know we're getting into heaven, right? Like, wouldn't it make me a bad husband if I say, oh, she's not going to divorce me over that, so it doesn't matter? Like, how horrible of a mindset would that be, right? No, I need to deal with the ways that I've hurt my spouse, the way I've disrupted our relationship. It needs to be taken care of because I love them and I want that good relationship. So the question then is, how do we repair, or how do, how do we reconcile ourselves with God? What do we do in order to repair that? And we see a good pattern for that laid out for us in the Old Testament, in the sacrificial system. So we're going to go to Leviticus, and we're going to look at what God told the Israelites to do in those situations. It says, if anyone becomes aware that they are guilty, if they unwittingly touch anything ceremonially unclean, and are unaware that they have become unclean, but they come to realize their guilt, or if they touch human uncleanness, or if anyone thoughtlessly takes an oath to do anything, when anyone becomes aware that they are guilty in any of these matters, they must confess in what way they have sinned. Step one, confess. Why does God have us confess? It's not because he wants to shame you. It actually should be obvious to us because that's how you repair disrupted relationships. That's not different God is not saying anything different than what applies to every relationship you have. The first step to dealing with something, if I have hurt my wife, the first thing I have to do if that, to deal with that is to acknowledge that I've done it and to realize what I've done and to actually, actually um, understand the way I've hurt her. As long as I don't understand or as long as I don't acknowledge, it can't be dealt with. So to restore the relationship, we need to acknowledge our sin. That's just good relationships. There have been times when I've been thinking, hey, man, I'm, I'm a, 
I've been assuming. I don't actually think this way. That would be even worse to think, oh, I'm a really great husband. I don't need any, to work on anything. But, you know, just going along, kind of like, oh, no, we're fine. Everything's fine. And then I come home, uh, or I get off the phone when I was supposed to be helping my wife pack for a trip to Camp Lainema. Totally random example. Certainly didn't happen. And I realize, case, <laughs> and as I talk to my wife, I realize I have done something very thoughtless. I have been very selfish. And she's trying to be very supportive of me because we're going to a thing I'm going to speak at. And so she doesn't really complain, but I can tell things are right. And then we start talking on the drive, and she explains to me exactly how hurtful I have been and exactly how hard it's been on my pregnant wife with two small children to get packed for camp and uh, packed in the van completely by herself. And then I realize, oh, wow. Maybe I shouldn't be on husband autopilot. I did this. And that was wrong, and it's caused pain, genuine and understandable pain, valid pain. And I have to acknowledge that. And that principle of confession carries, it's not just an Old Testament thing, it carries forward into the New Testament. In that same passage from John, he says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Notice, what's at stake here is, again, he's not saying anything about whether you're going to the good place or the bad place. He's talking about your righteousness. He's talking about your, your, the kind of person that you are. And so the first thing we have to do is we have to acknowledge what we have done. That can be really hard. A lot of times we invest a lot of ourselves into the idea that I'm, I'm in, in the right. I don't do this kind of thing, or I am, I'm the one who was wrong. And it can be hard for us to challenge that perception and say, no, I did something that I need to confess. The next thing that happens in Leviticus, once you've confessed, is it says, as a penalty for a sin they have committed, they must bring to the Lord a female lamb or goat from the flock as a sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement for them for their sin. Now, this is one of the most misunderstood things in the Old Testament, and we've talked about this a lot in the past year, about the way the sacrificial system works, because the, what we've usually been told is that what's happening here is the lamb is being punished in place of the person who did the wrong thing. So the way you repair the relationship is somebody has to get hurt. It's an eye for an eye. You hurt God, God hurts you, but he'll hurt a lamb instead. And that's not what the sacrificial system is about. It's not about another person being punished in your stead. One of the ways you can tell is because when they kill the lamb, they do it off to the side. The death isn't the part that happens in front of everybody. It's the offering of the blood and the parts of the animal that happen in front of everybody. In this case, what's really important is the fact that it's an, it's a, an animal of value. That's why if you read this chapter, there's a scale of animals based on your income. That if you're poor, you can offer a dove instead. You can offer something that's affordable. Uh, but it's, it's offering something of value to show that you're taking this seriously and that you're genuinely uh, sorry for your sin, that you're genuinely turning away from it. Otherwise, what David says in Psalm 51 doesn't make any sense. He says, you do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, you, O God, will not despise. Now, this is in the Old Testament, when the sacrificial system is still functioning. And he said, David says, the point isn't the animal. You, that's not what you really want. So what I'm going to offer you is a broken heart. Now, if the sacrifice is about punishment, his broken heart is not a valid alternative. 
There's no blood being shed. There's nobody dying. That's not a valid alternative. But if the point of the offering is to show that he has recognized his sin, that he has repented of his sin, and that he is, he is turning away from it back onto the right path, then actually the animal sacrifice is meant to show the broken heart. So what we find is that to restore the relationship, we need to repent, which means to turn away from our sin. Because confession without repentance, in a normal relationship, we would call that cruelty. Here's what I mean. Imagine if I went up to my wife and I said, hey, that thing that I did, that really, really hurt you. I did it. It hurt you. I know that. And I'm going to do it again. I'm not going to do anything to stop from it happening again. It's probably going to happen again soon. Right? Like, that would be cruelty. Right? We need to repent in order to repair the relationship. At the very least, you need to be able to say, I am sorry, I will not do that again. Now, you may still mess up because we're human, but that's why repentance is about turning away and going the other direction, going back onto the right path of being a loving spouse or of being a loving follower of Jesus. So, those are the components of confession. That's why we confess. And that may not have been particularly... Uh, startling to you. But there's one other thing that we do in our service that's very important and is, I would argue, an essential piece, a uh, second piece to what we do. And the technical word is absolution. So we forgive each other during the service, right? I have you say to each other, your, your sins are forgiven. Now, I am not assuming that the person you're talking to sinned to you, against you personally, right? That's not the assumption. That's why we, we're, we're, we're actually doing is we're forgiving people in the name of Jesus, right? We're offering God's forgiveness, and the word for that is absolution. Why do we do that? Well, again, if we go back to Leviticus, we see that absolution is an important part of the process. It says, a, piece of, piece, a priest shall then offer the animal as a burnt offering in the prescribed way and make atonement for them for the sin they have committed, and they will be forgiven. That statement at the end... Uh, and they will be forgiven. That's the assurance of God's forgiveness, being forgiven by God. And it's the priest's job to facilitate that. And in the built into the sacrificial system, it is this recognition about relationships that we often forget. To restore a relationship, we, the people who have done the wrong, need to know that we are forgiven. We need to know that the person has forgiven us. It, when, that until you you know it's like you'll you'll say you're sorry there'll still be some tension and when you know that the, when the tension is gone that you know that now it's not being held against me right it, that it's no longer a barrier between us in order for the relationship to be back on track we need to know that we're forgiven and in our modern world we are terrible at that we are terrible at forgiving each, each other on two levels. Number one is we like to hold grudges. There is so much power. I think I get a rush from withholding forgiveness, right? From being, in, I'm entitled to be the injured party. I know that I'm, I'm the morally, moral superior in this relationship as long as I hold on to this grudge. There's a rush to that. But also, even when we are willing to forgive, we don't say it. I'm going to say something, and I want you to think of what is your knee-jerk reaction to say back. When I say, I'm sorry. That's okay. No problem. Don't worry about it. 
we say all kinds of things other than I forgive you. And it's usually what we're doing is we're denying the need for an apology. Now, sometimes that's an important distinction to make. Casey and I are trying to teach our three-year-old that he doesn't need to apologize when he trips and spills his juice. Right? That's an oops, we tell him. That's different. When you hit your sister with a brick, then you need to apologize. You did something wrong. No, my son would never do that. But hitting sister with a brick, totally different from accidentally tripping and spilling juice, right? That's an important distinction to make. But in my experience, I find that I do the whole no problem, no matter what. And what, what we aren't recognizing is the power of forgiveness. In the biblical languages, forgiveness is usually tied to the idea of releasing a burden. Because as we acknowledge our sin, I realize I did this really bad thing, and I can't change that. I carry a weight. Have you ever felt that? That weight of guilt. And forgiveness is the ability to release that burden from someone. And we neglect that power. But that is essential to restoring our relationships, including our relationship with God. So the question then is, how does God communicate his forgiveness to us? And there's two ways. Number one, is we go back to that same verse about the sacrifice. The first way that we, we know about God's forgiveness, we are communicated God's forgiveness, is right there. That verse. The fact that it's written down, the very words of God. See, this was, a, this was something that all of the Israelites could read. So when they went to the tabernacle, they knew that these things were not just made up by the priests, so that they could get the best, because they really like veal. These, this was from God, that this was what they needed to do. It's written down. So God has assured us in Scripture that he will forgive when we confess and repent. And that carries over into the New Testament as well. Again, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. If anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. This is why every week when we confess, I read you a passage of Scripture and I ask, do you believe this? Do you believe that this is the word of God and that his word can be trusted? We say yes. Then we know that we can, and are for, can be and are forgiven when we confess. And that's our assurance. And for some of us, and in some situations, the words of Scripture alone are enough to give us that assurance, to help us to feel the loss of that burden, the release of that burden. But, especially for those who aren't as familiar with Scripture or aren't as practiced in the faith or are going through really challenging times of doubt, the Scripture may not be enough for them to feel forgiven. And that's why when we return to that verse, we notice there's a role for the priest there. He didn't just write down, if you do this, you'll be forgiven, and then they could go out and do it on their own. He had them go to a representative of God who would walk them through it and tell them they are forgiven. So consistently throughout Scripture, God uses his people to offer his forgiveness to the world. That is God's MO, is to use people to assure others of his forgiveness. That's what the priest is doing in this passage. And it again carries over into the New Testament. This is how Paul describes the ministry of the apostles and of the church. He says, 
All of this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. So God is doing the reconciling, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God uses people to tell each other that they have been forgiven by God, because there is so much power in hearing that. There is so much power in being told and believing you have been forgiven. God does not hold that against you. That is not a barrier. That is not a disruption. You and God are reconciled. Again, not talking about whether you're saved or not, but whether you're on good terms with them, whether you have the kind of relationship that you want to have with God, but none of us are entitled to. That assurance is powerful. And that is, unfortunately, sometimes one of the most neglected uh, gifts and responsibilities that we've been given as a church, to be able to offer that to people. So as we talk about the fact that we can give people the assurance of God's forgiveness, then the question becomes, what are we doing when we confess and and absolve people in the service? Because this is another place where we get into some touchy ground. So I'm going to give you four things that happen when we make this part of our gathering. And the first couple will be easy. These are where we get the amens. Okay? The act of confession trains us to see ourselves truthfully. It's really easy for us to get distorted self-images, both thinking too much of ourselves and thinking too little of ourselves. And there is something about the regular habit of self-inventory that helps us to get an accurate image of who we are. It's kind of like uh, as, I, as I work to maintain my weight and my health, one of the pieces of advice I was given was weigh myself regularly so that I can track what's, what's working, what's not, you know, that kind of thing, and it helps me to figure out what I need to adjust. Confession works the same way. As I realize, man, I have to confess this thing a lot. I need to work on that. And hopefully at some point I start recognizing, hey, I haven't had to confess this thing in a while. God's really been working on that. Like, I used, to, I used to have that come up all the time, and now it's been weeks, it's been months. You know, as we regularly confess, we're able to get a good picture of ourselves and be able to deal with the sin in our lives and celebrate God's victory. The second thing that happens is the act of confession preaches the gospel. I will say that there, is, there are ways in which our, the confession and reconciliation can be the most powerful way we preach the gospel. Because anything else we do can communicate hypocrisy. Anything else could send a signal to people that we think we're the ones who've got it, we're good with God, we don't need to work on anything. We can, you know, but you can't confess and claim you have everything right. One of the things that churches get into trouble with is we will compound the problem of sin with cover-ups. This has happened a lot lately where a Christian leader will sin and then the church will cover it up because they don't want people to know that their Christian leader has sinned. And that compounds, now you've got the sin, you've got dishonesty, and also the fact that you've misrepresented the gospel. Because the gospel says that we all need Jesus and we always need Jesus. 
And if we try and cover things up as if to say, well, that pastor, he's the pastor because he's, he's outgrown his need for Jesus. He's so perfect that he doesn't have anything to confess. That is a horrible way to, to present the Christian life. And so when we confess we are broken and we need a Savior, and we confess we have a Savior, that is the gospel, right? People are broken and Jesus can fix them. That's the gospel. And every time we confess, we proclaim that. Now here's where it gets tricky. Because I'm saying this because I believe, I find it in Scripture. The act of confession reconciles us to God. I believe that something genuinely happens when we confess together that reconciles us to God. I'm not saying it can only happen this way. But when we confess together and we forgive each other in God's name, something genuinely happens that reconciles us to God. Again, not the difference between being saved and unsaved, but restoring your relationship, your equilibrium with God. And we find this in Scripture with verses that we often struggle to interpret. You can find people, any tradition, you can find their, their uh, you can find those points where they start to really quibble on how to interpret verses. Like, oh, I know it sounds like it's saying this, but it's actually not. Here's one of those that we struggle with. When Jesus uh, spoke to the disciples in John after the resurrection, he said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. In Matthew, Jesus is talking to his believers, just whoever is there. It's not specifically the disciples. And he says, Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. This is the same place where he says, Where two or more are gathered, I am there. And he's specifically talking about what to do in situations of church discipline. And then James says, is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Now, we could argue for days about exactly what each of those verses mean and what nuances are involved. I will tell you this. If they mean anything, the one basic principle they have to have in common for them to make any sense of any kind, even just grammatical sense, is to say that God's people have a role to play in the forgiveness of other people. Those statements do not make grammatical sense if that is not true. Now, the danger, and where your red lights are going off, is if I'm saying that I get to control whether you're forgiven or not. Right? There was actually, there's a funny story about John Wesley, who, one of the, you know, the main founder of Methodism. One of the early ways that he got in trouble was he, I think he was, in, he was either engaged to a woman or he wanted to be engaged to her, and she ended up getting engaged to another man, and when they came up for communion, he denied them communion. It's one of those traditions where the pastor gets to decide whether you're worthy to partake or not. And we worry, you know, like, if I have the power to decide you're forgiven, you're not forgiven, you know, and then, then that's really dangerous. And that has been dangerous. That has been abuse in the past. But that's not what I'm saying. See, the Bible says that we have a role to play in the forgiveness of other people. 
not, not in and of ourselves, but as representatives of Christ. It also says that anything we ask in the name of Christ, we will receive. Now, does that mean you can pray for anything you want and you'll get it? We know that's not how God works, right? What it means is that when we pray in his name according to his will, God acts, right? It's the same way with confession and with forgiveness. We are given this role to play because we are filled with the Holy Spirit and because we are the ones God has entrusted with the knowledge of his means of forgiveness. So we have the ability to say, if you confess, because scripture has told us, if you confess and repent, he will forgive you. And then when the person confesses and repents, we can say, yes, you are forgiven because of the standards God has set. Not because I get to decide who's worthy of it or not. That's not how God delegates. God doesn't create magicians. He creates, he creates representatives. But what that means is that we can trust that when God's people come together and we proclaim God's word, this is what it means to be forgiven, this is the steps it takes to be forgiven, and we walk each other through those steps, we can then say, you are forgiven, and we can trust that God keeps his word. That those words that we offer each other are powerful and meaningful, so that if you did confess and repent this morning, and your neighbor told you, Jesus forgives your sins, that was a true statement. They were speaking truth to you, and that truth is life-changing. Psychologists have recognized the power that forgiveness has on people psychologically, let alone spiritually. Physically, the burden of guilt can cause physical manifestations, so even just talking about the psychology of your body, that, that would be enough to explain why James says that if you confess your sins, you'll be healed. There is incredible power in forgiveness, and we have been delegated that, uh, being God's representatives in that. And finally, the act of confession reconciles us to each other. And this is a very simple principle, although it's hard to accept. Jesus says, when you, have, when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them, so that your Father in heaven may forgive your sins. And every week, we pray those words that I, uh, I say through gritted teeth, Forgive us our debts as we have also have forgiven our debtors. Oh, there's that connection between God's forgiveness of me and my forgiveness of others. Because if we can be forgiven by God and we accept that forgiveness and we live in that forgiveness and we experience that forgiveness and rejoice in it, how could we possibly deny it to other people? How does that make any kind of sense? As we are reconciled to God, we are reconciled to each other. There, there is one God, right? And we're all being drawn to him. We can't all come to one point without getting closer to each other. It doesn't physically work, right? You couldn't get close to Jesus without getting close to all those other people that were following him, the tax collectors and the zealots and the women. You couldn't get close to him without getting close to those other people. That's how God works. And so confession and reconciliation makes us into a family. It draws us together, whether you want to or not. I know this, is, this, this can be some heavy stuff. I, I hope it's, it's good news to you because it is gospel. But here's where I, what I want you to take away. Here's the basics that I want you to walk away with. Following Jesus means being honest about our failures and his victories. We don't gain anything by pretending that we don't need Jesus. And we don't gain anything by pretending that he's not making us better. 
following Jesus means you need to be honest about those things. It doesn't mean you need to tell every person on the street everything you've done wrong. You'll notice we don't do itemized confession. But it does mean that honesty is important. As God's people, second of all, we have the honor and the responsibility to share God's forgiveness. Sometimes the way we get unbalanced in our proclamation of the gospel is all we focus on is other people's need for confession. We want to focus on, here's how horrible of a person you are, and you better turn back because God is angry with you. And we forget to share the joy of the fact that you can be forgiven, and you can know that you've been forgiven, and it can all be repaired and restored. That is an honor that we have, and it is a responsibility that we have. And finally, we should never forget that confession and forgiveness have the power to transform lives, communities, and the world. As we experience the lifting of that burden as people, we are transformed. As we lift the burdens off others, they are transformed. As our community experiences forgiveness, the community is transformed, and our world is transformed. There is incredible power in forgiveness. And God has called on us to use it. As I ask the worship team to come up for our final song, I want to ask you uh, to consider what God is putting on your heart. I don't know what it is. Maybe he's got somebody that you need to forgive. Maybe he's got something you need to ask forgiveness for. I don't know what it is. You may have your own individual thing, but there's other things that we invite people to consider every week. One of them is whether you need to give your life to Jesus and and be reconciled to him in the first place. Get that assurance, that commitment that God has saved you and nothing's going to separate you from his love. And start on the journey of, of the, daily, uh, the daily combat with sin and the daily transformation. Maybe you've been saved and you're looking for a group of people that can help support you or you're looking for a group where you can get involved in helping other people. That's what our small groups and our service teams are for and you can check the box on your Connect card if you'd like to get involved in one of those. And finally, if you want to become a a member, if you want to get more deeply connected with this congregation, with this family that is seeking to be forgiven, to forgive each other, and to share forgiveness with our community, that's who we want to be. You can check the box for the Connect class on your card, and we'll get in touch with you about putting together one of those classes. So I'd ask you to consider one of those decisions as we stand and sing our final song.